Good morning. It was wonderful to have Hannah and the worship team leading us in some of these Christmas carols. As I stand here with the Christmas tree and the nativity scene being put up, this is one of the happiest times of year for me. I have wonderful memories of Christmas, and it's connected with family. That was a time that our family, uh, when I was a child, oftentimes came together. Uh, and that is a little bit of the topic that we see today as we come to the Word of God. So let's turn together in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. As we are reminded at this time of year, we remember that you did not withhold your only Son, but gave him so that we might be reconciled first to you. And because we were reconciled to you, we are also reconciled with one another. Thank you for the creation and the establishment of your church, this precious body that has gathered here this morning, united in your Son, Jesus Christ, bound together by your Holy Spirit, and coming together to hear your word. And we pray this morning that as we hear your word, we would be knit more together as a body of believers, trusting in you together, coming to know you together as one people. Thank you, Father, for that grace and that mercy. Work within us now as we are gathered together that you might be glorified and that your people might have satisfaction and joy in you. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. I want to take a few moments this morning to let you know where we are as we are continuing through Genesis. And it's because we have been going through large chunks of the scripture together. And I was talking actually with Dan last week, and um, he was showing me his Bible. If you, oh, by the way, just any of you who are coming back to us over this holiday season, we're going through Genesis. We have blank copies of Genesis, and if any of you uh, would like a copy of that, please raise your hand, and it's something to take notes in as we uh, go through this book together. But I was looking at Dan's, and he was like, I'm having a lot of trouble taking notes, because you're going through so much of the Bible, and I'm trying to figure out what page I should actually write something on. And one of the things that we have a very strong conviction of is that the Word of God must be our authority. And we want to be driven by the Word of God and not our agenda. And so I want to let you know a little bit of why we've been kind of like skimming through large sections. And part of that is because it's going to seem like, because it actually is going to be the case, that we're going backwards in the next few weeks. <laughs> um, and so let me give you the analogy of a puzzle. And uh, actually, we heard this uh, for those of us who went on the uh, trip down to the Women's Choice Network, and they were trying to explain a little bit of how they do their work. But if you think of a puzzle, you know, like one of those you know, 5,000-piece puzzles that sometimes families get together to do at Christmas, and you know what everyone does at first is everyone tries to find all the edge pieces, and then you try to put the edge pieces together, and you, know, you start with the four corners, and then you try to build out from that. And in a sense, oh, and then after you get the edge, then you start looking at the box and you try to figure out, okay, you know, like, oh, here's some green pieces. So I got a big, like, pepperoni pizza puzzle that I've put together. 
And then he's like, oh, you know, here's some of the peppers. Let's put all the pepper pieces together. Let's put all the pepperoni pieces together. Okay, that's kind of like what we're doing with this passage of scripture here this morning. Um, we, some of you may remember that we went through the life of Jacob and sort of the large frame, the outside, the edges, you might say, the thing that have defined this passage for us is the name of Jacob when he was given. And he was born holding on to his brother's heel. And so he was named Jacob, having that sense of grabbing after the heel of his brother. And we saw how that worked out because as those two brothers grew up, it was Jacob who was always reaching out and grabbing after his brother and trying to take from his brother, taking his brother's birthright, taking his brother's blessing. And as a result, his brother finally got fed up and said, I'm going to kill that little bugger. And Jacob then had to flee for his life. But as he fled, God had come to him and worked in his life till when we got to the end of his journeying away from his family, we saw another grabbing and another not letting go. And it was just that strange episode where God came and wrestled with a man, and you think, what's up with that? But that is very clearly a framing device for our passage, because you have Jacob's name given at the beginning, defining his character where he grabbed after his brother. And then God came and gave him a new name when he came and he clung on to the Lord and would not let go of him. And so you see that transformation of his character defined by the giving of the name and shown in that symbolism of that wrestling, first grabbing after his brother and then wrestling with God in Genesis chapter 32. So that's kind of like the frame. And then once you've got the frame, you kind of fill in the, the picture. You look at the box and you try to see, well, how does this all come together? And we're seeing many different illustrations of how God transforms the life of Jacob and his family. Actually, this is the story of Abraham's family overall. And we saw not only was it that Jacob needed his life transformed, but it's everyone. Everyone needs their lives transformed by God. And so we saw that dynamic going on between Jacob and Esau, but not only Jacob and Esau, but also Leah and Rachel, where the two of them were in competition with one another. But we saw God pouring out his life on Leah and bringing her to trust in him and seeing that her blessing wasn't rooted in this case, in her husband. And she was trying to serve her husband and bearing the children for her husband and naming her children with the reflection there of her hope and her desire that her husband would come to love her. But then she finally realizes, my hope is in God. This time, when she bears her fourth child, she says, I will praise the Lord. And so we're going to be looking at uh, these pictures that help develop the idea of how God is working in this very, very broken family. And first we're tracing this theme of Jacob and the transformation that he went through along with his wives and this idea of where their blessing is sourced in. And then we're going to go back and we're going to be looking at different themes in Genesis. So you remember actually when we started the book of Genesis, 
And so God is a wonderful storyteller, right? He writes a perfect story. I remember uh, when I wrote my thesis, there was one point in which my advisor was looking at my dissertation, and he said, what does this have to do with the question that you posed at the beginning of your thesis? And Larry's smiling at me because, like, you know, professors, you got to keep those students on task and focused because especially when you're writing a thesis, if you start going off into these little, you know, tangents here and there, you'll never get done. God isn't like that. You don't have to keep him on task. And those themes that we saw right at the beginning of Genesis echo all through the pages of Scripture. And if you keep those themes... If you remember, the first couple of weeks we spent in Genesis, we were looking at some big themes in Scripture, and those themes would come up again and again and again, and they're coming up here in the life of Abraham. And so what are some of those themes that we saw um, reflected in the life of Abraham? Well, I mean, you know, what, 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 right at the beginning of creation, right? And God creating this world for Adam and Eve, designing a perfect world for them and giving to them and commanding the animals that he placed in be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And God, as he restores his people, you see, that'll, that'll be one of the themes. I mean, actually, uh, we saw a lot of that with Abraham and his family, right? And there was something going on where their purpose is being restored, but it's being restored in a way that transforms Abraham's character so that he can have the blessing that God wants to give him. And so Adam and Eve first receive creation, and they're to uh, multiply and fill the earth. But once sin comes, there has to be some kind of restoration. Right? And so Abraham's given the promise of a descendant. But as we all saw through the early stories in Genesis, that promise was hard for Abraham to trust, and he had to wait, and he had to learn trust in God. But as he came to trust in God, we see God came, and he is the one who restores Abraham's ability to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. And so there's one of those themes that we see echoed again, but it's restored to Abraham's family in a way that also not just restores that ability or the function but restores the person so that they can receive the blessing of God. We're going to look at two more themes this morning. First of all, the idea of trust in God. Trust in God. So what happened in Genesis 3? God had told Adam and Eve, all this is yours. But there's one thing. Do not take the fruit from that tree and eat of that fruit. And yet, despite that warning, Adam and Eve looked at that fruit, and they saw that it was desirable and pleasing to their eyes. And so there was a lack of trust in this desire to take the blessing for themselves. It was they who were going to make that determination, decide, this will be good for me, and so I'll take of it despite the fact that God had warned, do not take the fruit from that tree. And so there was that lack of trust in God. And that lack of trust in God that resulted in sin and the fall and the dissolution. What was the first thing that happened once they had taken that fruit? There was a sense of shame. And then the conflict that arises between 
Adam and the wife that God had given him. And so husbands and wives, every time you guys have an argument, it's Adam's fault. <laughs> I mean, you know, in the sense that that sin nature came into our lives. And now we act in that way. And we've seen that played out in spades in Abraham's family, right? Because there's this continual conflict that goes on in this family. And the way of restoration for this family will be when they learn to trust God and his promises, to live according to his law, then also their relationship can be restored with one another. And so a great part of this drama of Scripture, you know, we see, why is God telling us all this story? Is it just like, oh, this is where Israel came from. This is a history of their nation. It is that, but it's also much more our story. And in the life of Abraham and his family, Isaac, Jacob, Esau, Rebekah, Leah, we should see ourselves. And that's actually a great message of hope. Uh, so we have a fairly simple focus this morning. It's just the restoration of these two things that we see in Abraham's family, particularly between Jacob and Esau. And I love that we're coming to that at this time of the season because Christmas often is this time where our families gather together. And my family is a very dysfunctional family. Um, <laughs> I mean, just even outside of our immediate family and the kind of conflicts that we can have there, uh, many families. Christmas is a time where we not only remember Christmas and Christ, but we also remember a lot of our family conflicts, right? Because if you have an extended family, oftentimes there's members of that family that don't get along very well together. And that can be a painful time. It can be a time of loneliness. It can be a time of remembering those hurts when family that used to gather together no longer will. And that's something that we have certainly seen, both Irene and myself, uh, in our families. The kind of envy, jealousy, self-seeking, selfishness, greediness. We've seen that all, haven't we, in our own families? We examine ourselves. I think we see that in our own lives, our own hearts, and we understand there has to be something here that will bring us back together because the kind of sinfulness that is in my heart and your heart will tear apart our families. And so what are some of the unloving acts that we've seen in Abraham's family? Well, just between Jacob and Esau, we saw Jacob taking advantage of Esau's appetite, his weakness, in order to steal that birthright from him. We saw Jacob take advantage of Isaac's blindness in order to steal Esau's blessing. And why does Jacob do these things? I mean, not just because he's greedy, but why does Jacob feel that he has to do these things? Because remember, he had already a promise from God, didn't he? He had the promise uh, even from birth. Remember that prophecy that he would become a great man and that God would work through him. And so why was it that he had to do this kind of conniving 
and scheming in order to steal the blessing to Esau. And suppose that, you know, okay, so that, was, that prophecy was given when he was just a baby, and maybe it didn't sink in. But look at the promise that God gives him as he flees from his brother after Esau had sworn to kill him. Look at Genesis chapter 28 and verse 13. And so as Jacob fled from Esau, uh, and I won't go into too much depth in this passage because you'll see next week that we'll be coming back here and Elder Gordon will be taking us deeper into this promise that God has given to Jacob. But there's a promise here that as Jacob is fleeing from Esau that God will bless him and make him great. And if you have that promise from God himself, why do you need to keep cheating and scheming and conniving and stealing? I mean, in one sense, Jacob's already seen the result of that, right? That's what destroyed his relationship with Esau and let Esau swear that he would kill him. And so hopefully he's learned that lesson, right? And so now as he goes to another family and is taken in by his relatives, he'll of course stop uh, scheming and conniving and cheating. Well, if you look at Genesis chapter 30, look at what happens in Genesis chapter 30 and 37. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flock in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they come to, came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. He's come to this new family, and he continues to scheme and connive and cheat in order to try to take the wealth of Laban and make it his own so that the flocks would bear these lambs that would become part of his wages because he'd made this deal with Laban, the, the striped and spotted and the flecked will be my wages, the other sheep will be yours. And not only does he sin in that way, he continues to sin in other ways that he's already seen destroy families. What was one of the great things in his own family, in his own relationships? Well, Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And that kind of favoritism had torn apart that family. And that same kind of favoritism, Jacob engages in again with his two wives, preferring Rachel over Leah. And even here, what we see, and this is the great hope for me, is that God continues to work in Jacob's life. Jacob doesn't trust God. Right? When you look at actually Jacob's response to the promise that God gives him, and you remember we highlighted that a couple weeks, if God will keep me, and if God will cause me to prosper, and give me clothes to wear so that I can come again to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. The basic reason that Jacob continues this horrible pattern that he's already seen tear apart his own family and will now put this division in his relationship with Laban and his family, he does because he simply will not trust the promise that God has given him.
Uh, but as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, his problem now as he tries to cheat Laban is that Laban is himself a cheater, as we've already seen as he got those two wives, right? In the dark, Laban had snuck Leah in and gotten 14 years of labor out of Jacob when the normal bride price would have been one. I mean, there's a man who can really multiply his investment 14 times over. But yet, what does Jacob begin to learn? So he's met someone who is better than him at scheming and cheating and conniving, and yet he still prospers. And so what he sees is that although Laban is on to him and can outmaneuver him in every turn, that God is the one who still brings blessing to him. In terms of the favoritism in his family where he prefers Rachel over Leah, he sees that God sees that Leah is not loved. And he acknowledges this fact when Rachel comes and says, give me children or I will die. But in chapter 30, Jacob replies to her, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? What God is slowly teaching Jacob is that he is sovereign. And that when he was in the place of his original home and he schemed to steal the birthright from Isaac and steal the blessing uh, from Esau, that even that he left his home with nothing. And then now here, as he's in Laban's household and seeking to cheat and deceive Laban, but Laban turning the tables on him and changing his wages over and over and over, that it's God who's causing his blessing. And so what Jacob is doing, I mean, sorry, what God is doing in Jacob is God is teaching Jacob that his blessing is established and founded in him. And so let's pick up the story now as Jacob makes the decision to return home. And certainly he has the impetus to leave because at this point in time, he's seen that he's clearly that relationship between him and Laban because God has been giving the wealth over to Jacob despite the fact that Laban has been trying to cheat Jacob. And so there's that impetus to return home because the relationship with, with uh, Laban has been broken. But let's look at what happens when Jacob and Laban part. Because at this point, Laban really is the safer alternative because he's broken the relationship on both sides. But with Laban, number one, well, he has the daughters and the grandchildren. And also God has come to Laban. And Laban himself has told Jacob, God has told me not to harm you. And so there's a safer alternative there. And yet he is going back to his father's home to a brother whose temper he knows is bad and who is very ill-disposed toward him. And so we read that passage this morning. And I want you to see what it is that Jacob encounters as he chooses now to return home. Look at the beginning of chapter 32, and we read this. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he named 
called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. He knows that this is a very dicey proposition going back home. The last time he saw Esau, Esau was ticked, and Esau had sworn to kill him. And so he's sending some messengers ahead to test the waters and to see whether he might come home. And now look at what the messengers say when they return back to Jacob in verse 6. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. What does that tell you? Think that should tell you Esau is still ticked. He's not happy. I mean, if you're going back home and you're visiting relatives, and there's last time you saw them, they were really mad at you. And you tell them, I'm coming for a visit. And the message you get back, 400 men coming with me. We're going to meet you. Why is he taking so many people? I would say this. The scripture doesn't explicitly tell us here, but if, if Esau is happy to see Jacob and wants to come meet him and greet him, he'll just come, right? No need to bring an army with you. But when you bring an army, there's a reason you're bringing that army. And when the messengers come back and say, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him, the idea behind that is that he's coming with some mayhem in mind. And Jacob understands that, right? Because you look at verse 7, what does it say? Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. I mean, you know, these messengers had gone to meet Esau. Now, they don't come back and say, Esau's coming to kill you, but that's clearly the message. You know, Esau probably didn't tell the messengers, oh yeah, let Jacob know I'm killing him. No, he's just getting his guys together and he's He's coming. But the point of that is very clear, and Jacob gets the point of that. He knows he's in danger, and he's, he's, very greatly, he's greatly afraid and distressed. But I want you to see what he does here. He responds in faith, not perfect faith, not sinless faith, not even very solid faith, but he keeps going. Verse 9, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. Do you see the change here? Every other time in Jacob's life, how is he acting in all those different circumstances? He's acting according to earthly wisdom, his own wiles, his, his abilities to scheme and connive and cheat in order to get what he thinks he needs. He's been scheming his whole life. But he hasn't trusted God, and he hasn't trusted the promise that God gave him, or he wouldn't need to do these things. 
But this passage here immediately proceeds and is, is brought together by that renaming, by that renaming of Jacob to Israel. And that transformation of character that that renaming and that grappling and that encounter portrays. And so here, even though Jacob is afraid and he knows what it means when Esau's coming with those 400 men, and he, you can see his faith isn't perfect, right? Because God's promised. Right? You know, he said, you, know, you said to me, Lord, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. Well, that wouldn't be good if he and all his family are slaughtered, right? And so he's still taking these precautions, and he's still repeating sins in it. And so his obedience is by no means perfect. He's dividing his camp up. And then he's letting everybody know their place. Okay, Bilhan Zilpah, you and your families first, and then Leah, you and your children, and then Rachel, you and Joseph in the back. And the idea there is if Esau's coming, he's going to slaughter everybody. The least important will get killed first, and Rachel and Joseph have the best chance to escape. I mean, imagine, you know, boys, I got four boys. You know, suppose, you know, we're going to meet, we're going into like a gang territory, right? And I'm like, well, this is dangerous, guys. We might get killed. Uh, Emmeth, you go first. <laughs> He's going to be like, Hmm, dad really values me. <laughs> but do you see what's wonderful about that? Because how is your obedience to God? How is my obedience to God? How do we trust him? And even at my best moments, when I'm trying to trust God, I'm saying, Lord, I want to follow your will. And you look at the kind of decisions you made. Haven't there been a lot of you in that? And so when I'm following God, I'm following God, but I'm not by any means following him perfectly. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. It must be God that holds firmly to us. And you see God working throughout this passage in Jacob's life over and over. Jacob, I am your blessing. Everything that you can do to try to cheat your way, to grapple with this world, to try to take its blessings, it's failed every time. And I have been the source of your blessing throughout your life. And I have kept you and I have made you prosper. Will you trust me? And now Jacob finally, okay, God, I'm going forward. You said to go back. And so I'm going back. Now, okay, you know, uh, Bilhan, Zilpah, you take your children first. And he's doing all these other things. But he's going forward. And so I want you to see two things. Today's lesson, really simple. I mean, Jacob's not the only one God's given promises to. I mean, even say, like, oh, you know, like Jacob had that direct revelation from God. And God told him, you go back that I may do you good. You've got a lot of promises of God that he will keep you, that he will bless you. In fact, he has provided for your eternal life. Your sins are forgiven. You have an inheritance that will never perish and is firmly established through his very son. And so though... Jacob's faith is not perfect. His obedience is very flawed. But what we see here now is he has learned 
to trust God. And because he has learned to trust God, he's also able to take another kind of action. This is completely the opposite, can you see, of everything Jacob has done throughout his little life. Everything we've seen before, he's trying to take his brother's things. He's trying to take Laban's flocks. And now because he sees, what is he relying on? I'm going back because you said to me, Lord, I will do good to you. And so Jacob relies on that promise, and now he gives to Esau. Esau's coming with those 400 men. And from what the messengers say and Jacob's reaction, we know that he wasn't coming pleasantly. But he sends these herds as gifts going before him, and, and they're to tell Esau as they bring these herds up with them. Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed till now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And he takes a present, verse 13, he takes a present from his brother Esau, for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. Then he handed them over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead to me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when, my brother, my, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you long, where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. Do you see the transformation in Jacob's life and how Esau is now going to perceive that? Because when they had parted, Esau very clearly knew Jacob saw him as the one from whom he would take. He was the one that Jacob was seeking to exploit. And he would look at the weaknesses and the character of his brothers, and he knew, well, Jacob knows me very well. And if I stay in community, I stay in relationship with him, he's going to milk me dry. He's going to steal one thing after another from me. But because... Jacob now trusts imperfectly God. He becomes a source of blessing. This is a reversal of everything that Jacob had been before. And now when his brother is coming to meet him, he's receiving present after present after present. Because knowing and having confidence, some confidence, that God is his foundation, Esau is trans uh, Jacob is transformed so that he now becomes a blessing to his brother Esau. And it works. Because in chapter 33, as we read, when Esau now encounters Jacob, Esau runs to him and embraces him. That transformation just in that encounter as, as Esau is coming to meet him, and he sees, now my brother is no longer trying to steal from me. My brother's not here to exploit me. He took from me before, and he's coming back, and he's probably going to try to take from me again. No, it's different now. Now, Jacob has become God's means of blessing to me. And the relationship is restored. And that's the foundation of family, right? And so my family has its issues. Irene's family has its issues. 
Uh, we want our families to be able to come together. What can we be this holiday? What can we be as a church? Do you see what the church is? The church is a community, and, and, and we're from so many different families. And what reason would we have to want to be a blessing to one another? But this is a community brought together by God where he sends his spirit to work and what he is seeking to do in our lives is to transform us. And in this community, if we become the kind of community where we love and care for one another, we'll see that work of God among each other and strengthen one another's faith. And we'll become a testimony for God and how he can work to transform a people in this community. And hopefully, you know, <laughs> you know, there's that saying, yeah, um, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. That's not right. You need to use words. And yet, those words have to be accompanied by a transformed lives so people can see what God is about. In our culture, on the one hand, when we talk about the beliefs of Christianity, so unpopular these days, right, in terms of what we believe about God's law and how we ought to obey it with respect to who we are and our submission to him. Submission, that's such an unpopular word in our culture today. And so these teachings, very unattractive to the world. But what ought to be attractive is when they look upon the communities of God and they see in there the kind of care and concern and love that they're out there looking for and cannot find in any other place. This holiday, when you go back and you see your family, that's your opportunity to be a testimony to God. Those of you who have uh, family members, as we do, who are not believers, and we want to show them how God has made us a blessing to them. Because you have a security that the world doesn't have. Your future is with Christ, secured by him. Even if your family kills you, you'll just be better off. Yeah, I shouldn't remember. You know the, the first uh, uh, Star Wars movie where Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader meet, and, and, and Obi-Wan says to Darth Vader, if you strike me down, become greater than ever. You know, actually, that's you as Christians. If you get struck down, you'll get a new body, a better body, and you'll live forever in the presence of God. That is my prayer, my hope for us as a church, that we will continually be transformed in our characters, become a community that testifies to God's goodness, have transformed lives that show the power of God to change us. It won't be perfect. You see Jacob here. He does things very imperfectly, and those sins do have effect. And yet at the same time, they also transform his family and restore his relationship with Esau. We had a number of people uh, join our family two weeks ago uh, during our Thanksgiving baptism. And I want to ask those people to come up this morning. And we have your uh, baptism certificates, which is also your membership in our church. And so can I get you guys, uh, Dan, Christina, uh, Tony, Tiffany, uh, Jillian, Nikki, can you guys come up here and stand on the stage here? Dan, I see you there. You got to come up now. Christina, I saw you. Where are you? Okay, there you guys are. Okay, all of you guys come up. Uh, Irene, can you come up and 
uh, present their uh, baptism. So yeah, just yeah, line up. That's great. <laughs> so I want you guys to take a look. These are new members of our church. Pray for them. Love them. We grow together as a community. Uh, these are now members of our family. And in the upcoming weeks, you're going to hear from each one of them. And so I want you to do this. If you've got those blank Bibles, write it down in there. There's a lot of pages in there. You can write it down. Um, what I want you to do is when you hear their testimonies, they'll be sharing some of their prayer requests with you. And as they share those prayer requests, write them down and pray for these new members of our church. Uh, one of the things that... <laughs> Here comes Christina. Oh yeah, you're really important. <laughs> because she's giving her... So, starting with Christina, they're going to be giving their testimonies. Pray for them. Write down those prayer requests and pray for them. Our family does. We, uh, we pray for all of you guys as we go through the directory over and over and over. Um, and so let's pray for each other, uphold each other, and uh, appreciate and love one another. So let's uh, just welcome them to our family. And the five of you can go sit down. And Christina, uh, we'd love to learn a little bit more about you and what God is doing in your life. Can I have my water? Yes, you can. <laughs> Uh, oh, he hello. Hi. <laughs> okay. Hi. Uh, my name is Christina. I guess I'll share my testimony today. <clears throat> so I was born in Seoul, South Korea, in a very comfortable life in a Christian household. Um, we went to church every Sunday, but it really wasn't a huge part of our lives. I think we, uh, we had close to what people would describe as a perfect family. Um, and then my dad was diagnosed with stage four terminal lung cancer, and he passed away after a long time in the hospital. And this sparked a difficult and painful change into our family's future as we emigrated to Northern Virginia. I came to America not knowing English, freshly without a father, and growing up with an older brother that was incredibly angry and hurt and projected onto our family. We also lived well below the poverty line, and from a young age, I became pretty financially independent. Through all those years, I went to church, but I don't think I truly accepted Christ into my life. I also did not feel very close to my church, and I think I had a lot of bitterness in my heart due to my circumstances. I also had a lot of pride, too. I felt like God was never there in my life, and I had endured everything alone, which is not true. Um, my home life was pretty chaotic. We had financial struggles, and one of my closest friends in high school overdosed and tried to take her life. I thought I didn't need God because through all the difficulties, I thought I was uh, alone. I think I, this changed when I entered college. I never intended to come to a Chinese church, actually. I was looking for a Korean church, but <laughs> after finding ACF and just seeing how strong and passionate the upperclassmen were in their love for God, I was immediately drawn to um, come out to ACF and go to PCC on Sundays. Um, however, I think it was still hard for me to um, see God personally in my life, and I prayed that I would not just know of him, but truly know, love, and trust him in my life. And I think, interestingly, he answered my prayer through uh, putting me through one of the most difficult years of my life. Um, 
I think he revealed for me the biggest idol of my life, my desire to please other people and uh, just really broke me. Yeah, I had a lot taken away from me and I think I just lived in a lot of shame and bitterness, but through a lot of strong sisters in Christ, they really pointed me to God. And I think this was the first time in my life where I was able to understand the severity of my sin and just my utter brokenness without God. And, you know, for years I prayed and read the Bible, but ultimately it was just all of his doing that I was able to love and see him in my life. And, you know, every Father's Day I, I cried for a father, for someone to love and take care of me. But um, I think I finally see how just foolish that was because God is my father and he's just so much greater than any man or father could ever be. You know, no man would be able to sacrifice their only son for me to just know the deepest sins in my life and completely have the power to love and forgive me. Um, just, you know, he's my comforter, my provider, and I can no longer say I'm fatherless because God is my heavenly father and he knows me by name and calls me his child and invites me to a family that's so much greater than just the broken family I have on earth. And I feel really blessed to have been baptized at a church that I love and a church that loves God deeply and to be surrounded by people who show me how to live out my new life and just provide love and wisdom and guidance. And um, I think I want to end with the verse. I think that's given me a lot of comfort looking back on my life and just relevant, I think. So it's from Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. Um, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So thank you. So we want to take a moment to uh, pray for Christina, and I ask that you continue to pray for her throughout uh, the holiday season and remembering the wonderful testimony that we have in her. Elder Gordon, would you pray for Christina? That's great. Well, it's our privilege to be in your presence this morning. So that as a father, you love and care for us. We hear Christine's testimony as she shared the deep need in her life to have a father, someone protect her, someone to care for her, someone to know what's going on in her heart each day. And she's found it in you, Father. She knows you're the Father that will never leave her, never let her down, never be unavailable to her. And she continues to grow day in and day out, week in, week out, year after year. May she find that truth more clearly, just as we learned from Jacob this morning. We're imperfect, we're dysfunctional, we're sinful, but you're the God that never gives up on us. You're the God that chases after us and patiently molds us into the image of Christ. May that be true for Christina as she continues to serve you, love you, faithfully follow you. May she find that you're that father. Thank you for the many ACFers who come alongside of her, her family, her fellowship group, her cell group. May they continue to love and to pour into her. And as a church, may we do the same thing love and care for her the way you intended. Make us a community that will love uh, each other, 
in a way that shows the world what it is to be Christians. Thank you for bringing Christina and the other um, people who got baptized into this milestone in their life. They can remember what a great God you are. Pray these things in your name. Amen. 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 Good. Thanks, Christina. Thank Good. Thank you, Christina. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning, I want to share with you an incident that happened during World War I. 